moved this, and uh, there's a thing with a lot of lights over there, so I'm going to try not to break that. I find that the more lights on something, the more expensive it is. So I'm going to be very, very careful tonight. Man, I'm so glad you guys are here. Um, if you don't know me, I'm the youth pastor here at Grace Point. My name is uh, Ryan. And, uh, you know, as the youth pastor, I thought, you know what, since I'm a youth pastor, I'll keep it kind of fluffy tonight. You know, we won't go too deep theologically. I don't want to talk about stuff that is controversial. I don't want to talk about stuff that will be confusing. So if you have your Bibles, open to Revelation chapter 6. While you're doing that, I'll update my resume. So we have this saying. And let's see if you guys know this. This was around when I was a teenager. We used to say all the time in youth group and in church, uh, God is good. And then I say all the time, you guys got it. And yet every time I heard that phrase, at some point in the back of my head I was thinking, if God is good all the time, then why in the world is there so much evil in the world? In 2015, this video went viral, over 5 million views. It was an interview with a guy, some of you guys might know, but most of you don't, Stephen Fry. He's a British actor, comedian, and uh, very much an outspoken atheist. The guy who was interviewing, they sat across from each other on chairs in one of those like really cozy Diane Sawyer type, you know, fire and everything's peaceful and cool and mellow. And this very conservative British guy who I'm pretty sure is a Christian looked at Stephen and said, now just imagine with me, you die and you find yourself standing before God. What are you going to say to God at that point? And he kind of sat back and relaxed this Christian guy because he thought, I got Stephen Fry now. He's going to be speechless. Unfortunately, he's not the kind of guy that's ever speechless. You know the type, right? Some of you are elbowing your spouse right now. It's okay. And uh, Stephen Fry looked him in the eye and goes, If I see God, I will look at him and say, How dare you? How dare you? Bone, cancer, and children. How can you do that? How can you allow that if you are powerful and if you are good? And he continued to challenge the justice of God. He said, I would say to God, Why is there so much evil in the world that's not our fault? Why is there so much evil that we don't cause, we don't ask for, that just happens? And I don't know, I'm guessing most of you, in fact, I would even say all of us at some point have dealt with this question. If there's so much evil in the world, how can we say that God is good and God is powerful? How does that mesh? It's a question that Christians, that atheists, that people of all religions even people who consider themselves uh, not religious at all, deal with. And you know what? The intellectual question is tough, and most of us have wrestled with that and probably come through it on some point because you're here tonight, right, the Sunday night crowd. But here's the deal. It feels a lot different when you're dealing with it intellectually in your head than when evil smacks you in the face. All of a sudden, those questions you thought you answered all of a sudden are coming up. Why, God, did that person I care about have to die? Why am I dealing with this? Why, after so many years at the office, am I going through this with my job? Why, God, after all my hard work, why after this, why is my family falling apart? Why don't my children believe? I took them to church. I did everything I knew how to do, and they're just not going your way. Why is all this happening? You know, the thing I love about Revelation 6 through 7, it is confusing. It is complicated. I'm guessing tonight you'll hear some new things. I'm guessing tonight you'll hear some things that are a little bit different than what you've heard before. Probably not in contradiction, but some new things. But the thing I love about it is in that passage, we get a look at seven seals. Not these kind of seals. Sorry, that go ahead and show me the others kind of seals. There's a scroll. 
And that scroll on it has seven seals. And as each one of these seals are opened up, God, by giving John a vision, shows us things in the past, things in the present, and things yet to come. And it's in this passage that I think we see this idea of how can we say that God is just when there's evil? How, when we are going through so much pain and so much hurt, how do we know that God is still just? How do we know how we can trust him? And so tonight we're going to look at that passage and see what God's response is to the problem of evil. What God's response is to the problem of evil. So keep your Bible tonight open to 6 and 7, but before we go there, we spent a whole year in the youth group on Wednesday nights talking about Revelation. And one of the things that we spent some time doing is talking about how do we interpret it, because it's difficult. And I don't just want to preach a good sermon tonight. I'm hoping that by giving you just a couple pointers that have helped me out, that this might help you when you read the book on your own. The first thing I want to talk about is that Revelation is about things past, future, and present. And you'd say, where do you get that? And actually, I get it from Revelation itself. You can turn there if you want, but we're going to be mostly in 6 and 7. This will be on the screen. Revelation 119. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And so, from John's own words, God told him, write this stuff down. Some of it happens in the past. Some of it happens now and some of it will take place later. I find that when we look at Revelation, most of the books you're going to read are all about the future. And I'm not opposed to that. I think Revelation does tell us a lot about the future, but it also tells us about what John and the churches back in that day were going through. But it also has a lot to say about what we're going through on a daily basis. And so tonight, as we look at this passage, I'm going to focus on what it meant to John and his audience and what it means to us right here and right now. It doesn't mean that I don't think the future stuff's important. That's just what we're going to focus on tonight. And unfortunately, in the 20 or 30 minutes we're going to be here, I don't have a chance to say everything I absolutely possibly believe. One of the challenges of a pastor is I'll get done with this sermon and somebody will be like, wait a second, do you believe this, this, and this? And just know that, you know, in 20 minutes I can't tell you every single thing I think about Revelation. The second thing that's also important when you're looking at this book is that symbolism is meant to be interpreted. Now, when it comes to stuff in Revelation, all of us somewhere, when we're looking at something, have to come up with, okay, is this symbolic? Is it literal? Is it both? Is it somewhere in between? And with Revelation, it gets kind of confusing. It gets difficult. But if you think about it, you're used to doing this with the Bible already. Today, Pastor Brady talked about how Jesus is a door. And none of us, for a second, thought he meant that Jesus is an actual literal door. And someday you'll get to heaven and be like, is Jesus behind that door? And then Paul's like, no, he is that door. No, you know, right? And he talked about some of the cultural elements. He said, back in those days, here's what sheep pens, and it it really opened it up for me, right? I understood why now a shepherd would be laying in front of the gate. Before, that always seemed kind of weird, right? We don't lay in front of doors in our culture, but if you have a bunch of sheep and a gate and a a pen and there's no gate, well, of course, the shepherd is going to be the one to lay down in there, right? So all of a sudden, because he interpreted that for us, we understood it by looking at the culture, by looking at the past, and then we could look at the present, and then we could apply it to our own lives in the future. So, Revelation 5, 6. Let me give you an example of symbolism in Revelation. You can turn there if you want, but essentially that passage describes Jesus as a bloody lamb with seven eyes and seven horns. Okay? Go ahead and show this uh, picture we have. This is uh, a, you know, a, an artist's rendition. You'll notice, um, I just want you to know, some of you are looking at this like, this is really creepy. Why are you showing me this? This is the least creepy one I could find, so you're welcome. And... I'm pretty sure that when all of us get to heaven, if we see that instead of Jesus, right, we're going to be a little bit confused. In fact, I would urge you, if you go to a petting zoo and you see one of these, back away, don't touch it, and don't drink the water, right? 
we know that this is symbolic. Well, what does it mean? Well, I think most of us get that, oh, Jesus is a bloody lamb. He's the lamb who died on the cross for our sins and takes away our sin. Why seven eyes? Why seven horns? Well, real quickly, um, we know it, it goes a little bit deeper than this in Revelations. But on the surface, one of the easiest ways to describe this is we know uh, in the Bible that horns represent strength. Eyes represent knowledge because you see and learn things with your eyes. And so basically in the number seven in Revelations, even numbers get to be symbolic. Seven is the number of completion or perfection. And so when you have an animal with seven eyes and seven horns, it's saying Jesus is the one who took away your sins. He has seen them all, and yet he has the strength to forgive them. And so all of a sudden that has a lot more meaning than just if we were to draw, you know, a creepy picture. So with those two in mind, let's go ahead and take a look at Revelation 6, 1 through 8. And when we think about the justice of God, the first thing that we're going to see in this passage tonight is that John and God are very clear that evil has invaded our world in our lives. Read with me Revelation 6, 1 through 8. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like, a tr- like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wage, and six pounds of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard... The voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And all God's people said, Huh? So here's... When I was a teenager, every single movie had to be about the end times, right? It was like Left Behind, Mr. T was in most of them, and at some point he'd always be like, I pity the fool who doesn't believe in Jesus, you know? That's what he would do, and even if it was like a football movie, you'd get ready for the big game, all of a sudden a bright light, and everybody would be like, oh, they'd get up, slap the door, and go directly into heaven, right? So whenever we hear about the four horsemen and stuff, whether it's in popular depiction or even biblical ones, this is the image that we usually get, Right? You have the four riders there, starting on the left. I'm pretty sure that's Conquest. He's got a white horse and a bow, right? He kind of looks like a zombie, but, you know, whatever, let's move on. Uh, We have the red horse, so over there um, we have, you know, War on his red horse. Um, I don't know why, but he has really good abs, you know? I don't know if he does CrossFit or what's going on there, but I guess that's how he's depicted. We have Famine over there who looks kind of gaunt. That makes sense, black horse. And then you have the pale horse, and that's Death, right? This is the image we normally get. And so our minds are filled with this idea that at some point, at some time, you know, bad things happen. Four dudes come out of the sky to wreak havoc on earth. And now I'm not going to dispute that. I'm not saying that's not going to happen. But I want to talk about what this imagery would have pulled up in the minds of John and his hearers. And I think this is the picture they probably weren't working with. I think this is probably more accurate. You see this guy on a white horse with a bow. Who in the world is that? You see, in the days of Rome, in the days of John, there were one of the scariest group of people was known as the Parthians. They were famous for a couple of things, but the thing they were most famous for is they rode white horses, which not a lot of people did, and from those white horses, they were able to shoot 
bows. And you, so I think one way we can look at this is we can look at this passage and say, hey, in the future there's going to be four writers. And I'm not opposed to that. But tonight what I might want to suggest to you for John's audience and for us tonight, maybe the four horsemen isn't just telling us about the future, but maybe John, God is revealing to John the evil and awful stuff we face in every single day. We face conquest. We face war. We face famine. We face death. You know, if you think about it, world history is just one big story of all those things. I remember September 11th happened. I was in college. It was 2001, as you guys know. And I remember thinking, man, Al-Qaeda, evil, Osama bin Laden, evil. And I was right to think so, right? None of us would disagree. But I remember thinking, if we can just stop Al-Qaeda, if we can just get rid of Osama bin Laden, then everything's going to be okay. Uh, Al-Qaeda is still around. It's weaker. We got Osama bin Laden. But then all of a sudden, next we deal with ISIS. Our world doesn't seem to be running out of evil anytime soon. And if you look in your own life, maybe today or maybe in days past or days you know are coming, you've dealt with evil too. You know what it's like to be in conflict with people you care about. You know what it's like to want to live in peace with your coworkers, your friends, your family, and sometimes it slips from our grasp. You know what it's like to be the victim of violence, maybe physically, but maybe also verbal abuse. And maybe it was years and years ago, but it's still is in your head. Or maybe you've experienced a time of famine, and maybe not hunger, but maybe you've experienced famine spiritually. You've gone through a dry time. Maybe you've experienced famine at work. Maybe you've experienced famine in your family where things that were supposed to be healthy and vibrant aren't there anymore. And if you haven't faced those things, you know that we'll get our chance. So, Pastor Ryan, some of you are sitting here thinking right now, wow, thanks for cheering me up. I saw a creepy picture of a goat, some four horsemen, some weird dude on a white horse, and now you're telling me that life is awful. Get used to it. But here's the thing. I really don't like, at 32, I'm 32 years old, and I drive a geo prison. Two people I never want to go see are my doctor and my car mechanic because they always find something wrong. Right? And I have this idea. I take it to the mechanic, and I just hope that he's going to tell me your 1994 Geo Prism is in great condition. Don't do any work on it ever. It's going to last until, you know, Jesus returns, right? And that's never the case. They tell me stuff is wrong, and part of me always just wants to ignore it instead of deal with it, right? Like, and guys, we're great at this. We get sick or we hurt something. Instead of going to the doctor, we say it's going to be okay, and two months later, we're like, oh, it'll heal on its own, right? The thing is, is that these problems exist. This is a reality for most of the people in the world on a daily basis. And yet, we find that if we ignore a lot of the problems in life, it just gets worse. Ignoring it isn't an answer to evil. And that's what I find. And if you're an atheist here tonight, I want you to know some of the best people I know are atheists. Some of the most moral, some of the most great, some of the most, some of my best friends are atheists. But one thing I find is that in the atheist response to evil, that the world is just evil, there is no God, it's going to get bad, you're going to die, try to get as much fun as you can, I find that at some point that becomes very, very hollow. It becomes hollow when you're saying goodbye to a loved one. It becomes hollow when the job that you thought was secure for years isn't there anymore. It becomes hollow when you have saved up your money, you thought you were ready for retirement, and all of a sudden it's not where it was supposed to be. You didn't have the nest egg you thought you would. I find that that answer is very, very shallow. When we face evil, maybe for the first time or the fifth time or sixth time, what happens is evil threatens to destroy us. And let me be clear, there's two kinds of evil we face. There's the kind of evil that happens because of something we did. Proverbs 19.3 says, A person's own folly leads to their ruin, 
but their heart rages against the Lord. A lot of evil, a lot of suffering that I've faced in my life is because I made bad decisions. And as a youth pastor, I see this all the time. A teen comes into my office and says, Pastor Ryan, I need to talk to you. I say, yeah, man, what's going on? My life is horrible. It's ruined. It's over. Oh, I'm so sorry, man. What's going on? Well, my parent won't let me drive. I have to stay home. I'm not to go hang out with friends. And my parent's awful. You don't understand how bad my home life is, Pastor Ryan. And everything's falling apart. And I don't understand why God's allowing this to happen. I'm so sorry, man. Tell me what's going on. Well, I can't. Why can't you drive? Oh, I, I, I wrecked the car for the third time. Oh, oh, okay. Um, so who was driving it? Uh, me. Oh, I'm sorry. Did somebody hit you? No, it was my fault every time. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm not sure we can blame that on God or your parents. Then why, why aren't you allowed to go outside and have to stay in your room all the time? That sounds harsh, man. Oh, because I failed all my whole, I failed all my tests. Okay. Well. I mean, did somebody hold a gun to your head and not have you study, right? And we'd laugh about it because, you know, we're all past those teenagers and we've been through that. But how many times in our life do we get mad at things that are, you know, mad at God and mad at other people for things that are our fault? But there's also an evil that you face that isn't your fault. I was in the weight room the other day, and I know it's hard to believe by looking at me, but uh, I was in the weight room the other day, and somebody remember telling me, hey, I'm sick, I've got this problem and that problem, and I know it's because... Um, I've sinned. And I said, wait a second, because you've sinned, you now have, you know, this health problem completely unrelated to sin. It was, you know, something that doesn't happen, you know. Think of it, uh, I won't share what they were dealing with. Let's say they were dealing with cancer, you know. Because I was a bad parent, God struck me with cancer. And I said, no, that's not the case. When sin damages your life, you'll know it. If you eat too much, you get fat. If you drink too much, you can get drunk, and bad things can happen. If you do things, you'll see a cause and effect from sin that's pretty clear. At least in my life, that's what I've experienced. But there's suffering in our life that is not caused by God. It just seems to happen. And when it does, this evil, whether it's our fault or just kept thrown upon us, threatens to do about three things. One is that it can separate us from God. You guys have probably all known the person who said, you know what, I'm going to follow God, I'm going to devote my life to them, and then all of a sudden bad things happen, and they throw their faith by the side of the road, and they try to get along without God. We've all seen that happen. But yet for all of us in the Sunday night crowd, that's probably not the option you've taken, but where I go is when bad things start to happen, whether they're my fault or they just happen, I find myself wanting to distance myself from God. The other morning, on Sunday morning, Toby was having a bad day, and he didn't want to go to church, which is so not the case normally. It's the first time ever, you know, my f- sweet four-year-old was like, I don't want to go to church, and you can't make me. Which, you know, is great that he's 20 pounds. That's why God made children little, right? So you can pick them up and throw them, tie them in the car seat, boom. Yeah, you don't you have to go to church. We're going to stick your body there, but you can think about something else if you want. <clears throat> and I told him, I looked at him, and I felt so wise. I just came, I said, buddy, sometimes when we don't want to go to church, that's when we need it the most. And I felt like, whoa, that was good, Dad. And, it really was, and then God, I remember God saying to me, um... Yeah, that's, you need to remember that. Because a lot of times, even as a pastor, when I have a bad day or when something doesn't go my way, when I fail or failure's thrust upon me or just something goes wrong, I don't know if you've ever felt like doing anything but reading your Bible. Man, I don't want to pray. I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling alone. Instead of running to God, we run away from him. And yet I find that's when I need him the most. And so tonight we look at this image of these four horsemen and the death and the suffering in the world, and we come to the realization That when it comes to evil, we get to choose how we respond. Look with me to Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. 
They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. You see, one of the issues in Revelation is that John is writing to churches, and some of those churches are undergoing intense persecution. People are dying for following Christ. And one of the questions is, where are these people now? What are they doing? What do they feel? (coughs) And here we get a glimpse into it. The fifth seal is opened, and the people of God who have been slain for following God, the people who have died for their faith in Christ, say, God, how long? How much longer are you going to allow evil to go on? How much are you going to allow your people to suffer and die before you come back and deal with evil? How long? And God's answer is interesting to me. He doesn't get mad at them for crying out to God. A lot of times when we're suffering and pain, we feel like we have to use really holy language and be really careful. I mean, to me, it sounds like they're screaming at God. And we need to realize, Pastor Brady said this before, and I'll say it again. When you're going through a hard time, you can't bruise God. It's okay to be honest. He knows what you're feeling, but being honest about it is the first step about turning it over to him. And so we see them crying out to God, and God says, wait, I am doing something through this. I haven't got back, come back yet. I haven't dealt with evil decisively because I am still working. I'm still bringing people to know Christ. I'm using this evil, this painful, this broken world to bring Christians and non-Christians closer to me. You know, some of you guys know my story. I came to Christ at 16, and I didn't come to Christ because my life was awesome. I wasn't walking around going, you know what, my life is so good, it's so awesome, everything is perfect, everybody likes me, and so therefore, I'm going to start going to church and praise God. Maybe for some people that's how it happens. But for most of the teens I work, most of the people I see, their testimony when they didn't grow up in church goes like this, my life was awful. And mine was, I was a mess. I was anxious, I was depressed, I was even suicidal. And when somebody started telling me about God and somebody who can take away sin, pain, and hurt, I was like, that sounds awesome. I'm going to show up to your church. You see, because God will use the pain of our life to bring him closer to him. And if you look at your spiritual journey with God, the times when you've clung to God the most, the times when you've cried out to God, the times when you've learned new things, grown closer to him, for some of you it's going to be the times you suffered the most were also the times when you grew the most. But what am I saying? Am I actually saying that God is up in heaven manipulating us? That he's, he's the one causing all this pain? He's like a doctor who, you know, is running around trying to hit people with his car so that, you know, he can fix them up and show them how good of a doctor he is, right? Is that who God is? Is he just looking down and saying, you know what? Uh, this person right there, um, Zach, I'm just going to zap him and make him break his leg. And so he starts going back to church more often and quits football. I don't think that's the case. But what I do think is while God doesn't cause or rejoice in the suffering that happens to us, I think God does use it. One way to think about it for me, and this sounds like a silly illustration, is to see God as as the greatest recycler. Me and Jamie started recycling a year ago, and if you, you guys know the process, I'm sure, you find all the certain types of junk around your house, you gather it up, you put it in the recycling bin, you know, we got cans, we got plastic bottles, paper, that if we leave sitting around most of the time, <coughs> excuse me, it's just going to grow mildew, it's going to get old, it's going to get nasty, it's going to pollute our house, if it just piles up, eventually, you know, we lose our children, bad things happen when this junk is around our house. And so we throw it in the recycling, and then the recycling company comes, they take it away, and the idea is, 
is that they take it, they know what to do with all that junk, and they reshape it into something good, into something beautiful, into something useful. You see, when evil comes, you have a choice to make. You can get bitter, you can get angry, and you can question God. And for a lot of us, that's where it's going to start, and that's okay. But I would recommend that the healthiest, the best thing you can do is not let it stay there. You take that junk, you gather it up, the pain, the hurt, and you hand it over to God. It doesn't mean that, he, that all of a sudden your problems are fixed, but it does mean that time and time again, in my life, in Scripture, in your life, in the life of people you know, he takes that junk, he reshapes it into something good, into something useful. He didn't cause it. The recycling guy is not responsible for my trash, right? God isn't responsible for it. He allows it. But he shapes it into something beautiful and wonderful. When suffering happens, you have a choice to grow closer to God or further away. I suggest you cry out, you take your issues, your stuff to him, and you allow him to transform it. The next thing we see in this passage is that not only does evil exist, we see that, we see that that we have a choice whether to walk away from God or come to evil, but then all of a sudden, in chapter 7, things take a turn and we get God's answer to the problem of evil. We get God crying out, I am just and I will take care of evil, and here's exactly how I'm doing it. Read with me Revelation Chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, Reuben 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. <coughs> From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. This is the largest cast of survivor ever. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, how many? 12,000. We're sensing a theme here. Verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to our God forever and ever. Amen. And so how is this? an answer to the problem of evil. When you look at this passage, the thing that people automatically jump to, and rightly so, is who are these people? What's their identity? We have 144,000, obviously from the tribes of Israel. Then we have a great multitude of people of every culture, every tribe, every nation. And there's a couple of different things that people look and say, okay, the, this is this group of people. 
The 144,000 is the one that's really debated. Some people say these are the Jews who believe in Christ. Some people say these are the Jews that sometime surrounding Jesus' return are going to come back to Jesus. And then there's a lot of people who just say, you know what, the 144,000 is the same exact people as the great multitude because a lot of times in the Bible you have two visions of the same thing. They also will note that if this is, you know, people of Israel, why is the tribe of Dan missing? If you look, the tribe of Dan is actually missing from here. They'll also say that in Revelation and several other places, they emphasize the, the Jewishness of all those who follow Christ. And so whatever theory you want to have, if you're a little bit confused like I am at times when I read this part, you're in good company. Read with me verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. If somebody ever gives you a hard question, this is the way to do it. Give you a hard question, I don't know, but I know you're really smart, so why don't you tell me the answer? It never worked for me in school, but here it works. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so who is the identity of these people? I would say we could say a lot, and there's a lot we could say and a lot we could figure out. But I think it has to include all those people who have had their sins forgiven in Jesus. Those who are following Jesus. Those who have come out. It says the time of tribulation. There's a lot we could do with that theologically, but the word in Greek just means intense time of suffering. And John, in a couple of the letters to churches, talks about how they are going through a great time of suffering. And so for me, I think we look at this and we see that God's first step towards dealing with evil has been to choose for himself a group of people. I hope you realize how chosen you are. I don't know in your life a time when you felt chosen, picked out, selected, but I always think back to middle school. I was the kind of kid, and I don't, maybe some of you are there with me, that I was always picked last for sports stuff, right? Dodgeball, last. Soccer, last. Baseball, last. You know, if it, it was a sport, I was picked pretty much last. Now, if you ever see me in youth group and we do pickers, I'm like, no, shelter the young ones. Don't let them get their self-esteem hurt. Don't know pickers. You know, I'm like, How, red eyes over here, or brown eyes over here, blue eyes over here. We don't have any red-eyed kids unless they stay up too late. I remember, though, all of a sudden when my situation changed and for the first time in middle school I was chosen. Hockey week came up. How many of you guys have seen the movie Mighty Ducks, right? You know, like the quacking and the flying V and all that kind of stuff. I had seen that movie. My parents had bought me hockey sticks. I lived in a small town in Ohio. The only ice we ever saw was inside of a cup, okay? I did not know how to skate, but I knew how to use a stick. And so when middle school floor hockey came up, I was all of a sudden amazing. I would score like six goals a game. And I remember Lauren Piper. She was that girl who didn't want to play at all. I made her stand next to the goal, and I would hit the puck off her stick into the goal. She would get like three goals a game. And I remember going into gym class, and instead of not getting picked last, all of a sudden I was picked first. I remember all the kids going, Ryan, if you're a picker today, pick me first. And almost every single time for hockey week, for the whole glorious week that it lasted, right? <laughs> you're like, hey, in middle school you got to pick your highlights. You know, you guys have been there. I remember feeling chosen by a bunch of middle schoolers who a week later forgot about me. But yet here we see John writing 2,000 years ago saying, if you are in Christ, God is putting his thumb on your forehead and you are chosen. You are picked out. You are valued. Your worth is not based on your suffering, whether it's caused by you or caused by something else. Your value cannot be diminished by the times and troubles you're going through. To be chosen means that we've had our sins removed. You'll see a picture here of Brandon Williamson. He started coming to youth group two years ago, and he last year moved to Tennessee, and we were sad to see him go. But 
I remember when he started to get this. It was dodgeball night of all nights, and I talked like maybe three minutes on spiritual gifts, maybe five minutes. And afterwards, everybody's eating pizza and getting ready to play dodgeball. Brandon comes up to me and says, Pastor Ryan, it's time for me to accept Christ tonight. And I said, Brandon, come back next week. It's dodgeball night. No, I said, Brandon, let's, let's go talk about this right now. What's going on? Brandon said, I've committed this sin. I've committed this sin. I've committed this sin. I can't take it anymore. Tonight's the night I want to give my heart to God. And we see so many teens that do that and then backslide. And then, especially in his case, where he was with our youth group for maybe a year before he, his parents had to move to Tennessee for work. And I, I remember being concerned about him, but every time I look on his Facebook, he's praising God, talking about how he's looking for God's will in his life, talking about saying, I used to be involved in drugs, this, that, and the other thing, and God has cleansed me, God has freed me. Because when you realize you are chosen, you start to live differently. Not just if you're a non-believer going to a believer, but if you're a believer going through a hard time. When you realize that you are chosen and picked out, the hard times get a little bit less hard. But the other thing we need to realize about our chosenness, and all throughout Scripture, to be chosen isn't just a privileged position. Oh, it is. But it's also a position of responsibility. Going all the way back to when God chose Abraham, he chose him and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do this, this, this in your life so that you can be a blessing to others. You see, as God's chosen people, we're called not to just know that we're going to ultimately be safe from evil, but to be God's hands and feet in the world to fight against the evils we see. Whether they're horsemen, whether it's hunger, whether it's famine, whatever evil you see, you should also see the people of God standing up against it in love, in the power of the Holy Spirit, but you can see God's people working against it. Uh, in a couple months, at the end of April, we're going to do something called the 24 Hours of Justice in Youth Group, and this is something you can pray for us about is that we're getting together with six or more youth groups in town. Our organizer is uh, Vicki Freeland is organizing that for us. And it's, a, it's something that International Justice Mission does. They're a Christian organization that fights against modern-day slavery. They actually go into countries where there's slavery, and as missionaries, as people of God, they work with local authorities, missionaries, to free people from slavery. And our teens are going to get together, learn about the issue, but uh, even more than that, they're going to raise money. And they're going to raise money so that International Justice Mission can keep doing what they're doing. Because we really believe as a youth group, teens aren't just the leaders tomorrow, they're leaders today. And God can use them to do justice right here, right now. Part of God's answer to the problem of evil is his people. There's a cartoon that's always going to be burned into my brain. I remember it because there were two guys sitting on a rock together. And they were looking off into the sunset. It was this peaceful, cartoony kind of scene. And the guy on the right said, <coughs> said, I've always wanted to ask God, why is there so much evil in the world if he can stop it? Why doesn't God come and stop evil? Why doesn't he just show up and do something about it? Because he can. And then the guy on the left said, man, that's a really good question. Why don't you ask God why he lets evil go by when he could stop it? And the guy says, well, I've been afraid that God's going to ask me the same question. It burned onto my brain for the rest of my life. And don't get me wrong, there will always be evil until Christ returns. We know that from Scripture. And yet we have, we as a church, we don't just say they're going to be people with habits, hurts, and hang-ups. Good luck. Pray to Jesus and, you know, hopefully you get healed in heaven. We say, no, we're all going to have to celebrate recovery. We don't just say we know people are suffering all over the world and so we're just going to hope that everything turns. No, we send missionaries. We support them. You see the people of God fighting against evil. 
Not because we're going to lick the problem and solve it once forever. That would be foolish. But because God is. And we work in anticipation of what he's going to do. And when people see us fight against evil, they know there is a God who is doing something about it. He chooses a people. The last thing I want to mention is the coolest part of this verse. There are these two chapters. Read with me verses 15 through 17. Therefore, and this is talking about the people of God, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Absolutely. In this passage, we see what the chosen, what the destiny for the people of God is. And if you're not one of them, you can become one of them tonight by accepting Jesus Christ. But just think about it for a second with me, just how much we have to look forward to. We get this imagery of we will be with God for all eternity. Right now, it's kind of like we know God in some ways. We, we, we know him, but it's at a distance, it feels like. You pray, and you don't hear a verbal answer, but you still feel the Holy Spirit. It's almost like we know God like a really close friend through Facebook, through letters, through emails, but you've never seen him. This talks about the day when you will see God face to face. The daily challenges you have will be overcome because there will be no more pain and no more suffering. And the very tears that have existed your entire life will be wiped from your eye, not by a tissue, but by the finger of God. Turn to your neighbor and say, that sounds pretty good. If your neighbor doesn't seem excited, check their pulse. They might, there might be a problem. You see, but why does this matter in the here and now? Why? You, I mean, somebody's thinking to me right now, Pastor Ryan, you don't understand my hurt. You don't understand my pain. I know that there's heaven in the future, that Jesus is going to come back and deal with evil, but I can barely even get out of bed in the morning. You see, the hope you have determines how you live. Imagine for me, just for a second, you fell on hard times and you came to me and said, Pastor Ryan, is there a job at the church I can do? And I said, absolutely. Just meet me every night for two hours, and I got a job. I can't pay that much. I could pay $5,000. And you go, okay, you know what? I'll do it. I'm desperate. I can take any money, and I can do this while I'm waiting for my next job. And so you show up at the church, and I say, okay, here's a shovel. Dig a big hole. And you're like, this is weird. But you dig it anyway, right? As a youth pastor, probably doing something with eggs and marshmallows or something. So you dig a hole, right? You get this big hole. And then I say, okay, go ahead and cover it back up. And then you cover it back up, and you're like, what now? And I'm like, you're done. That's good. That's two hours. Go ahead and go home. Like, okay, that was weird. Next day you come back. I have you dig the exact same hole, fill the exact same hole day after day. It takes about four days before you're like, I don't need money this bad. You're ready to throw the shovel at me, right? You're like, this is pointless. This is meaningless. This has no point. Ryan is a jerk, right? At some point you probably just stab me with a shovel, right? You're like, ah, just take your $5,000 and get away from me, right? But let's say you're the same person, same exact job. Let me change the hope. Let's say that end of the year you're getting $2 million, all of a sudden, this job that was awful, that was terrible, you're like shoveling like crazy, you know. I'm, you're singing my praises. I'm like, hey, you have to do it all with a spade now. You're shoveling with one hand, excited, praising God with the other, because at the end of this horrible, awful year, you know you're getting a million dollars, and nothing has changed. You haven't changed. The work hasn't changed. But your hope has. And so here's what I think we need to do as a people. If you are going through a time 
where life is awesome and there's no suffering even around you. Praise God for it. Don't just sit and wait for the other shoe to drop. Enjoy your life. But if you are at a place where you have been smacked in the face by evil, or when you get there again, I want you to take a minute to stop, and when life is so hard, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning, I want you to remember to not be surprised by evil, because it exists and it happens. But I also want you to realize that in any suffering, any adversity, you have the choice to draw closer to God or further away, right? That atheist I mentioned, Stephen Fry and me, have probably gone through through some of the same difficulties in life. One person draws closer, one person goes farther away. God hasn't changed, the situation hasn't changed, it's our personal decisions. And yet I also want you to remember that God is just, and he's not just just in the future, he is just right here, right now. What is he doing about the evil in my life? He's chosen you. He's chosen me, you, everyone you've ever met, to have their sins washed clean so that my personal evil, the evil that I've committed, doesn't have to tear me down, doesn't have to drag me to hell in this life or in the life to come. But God has also chosen you to be a blessing and a light, to be salt and light to the earth. Not just to do good things, but to display the glory of God. A God who hates evil and will send his people to deal with it. Not in our own strength, by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I also want you to remember that not only are you chosen as a privilege and as a responsibility, you're chosen for a destiny. Every tear, every pain you've ever experienced will be wiped away. Not only will you not experience pain, you won't even experience the hurt that comes from those memories. You will serve and worship God day and night. And I used to think, man, it's hard for me to sing for 40 minutes. How in the world am I going to do all eternity? But if you look at that passage, it actually talks, Revelation gives a vision of singing to God, but even more so, a vision of living with God forever. Of having service and work that is meaningful, that is for God, but that doesn't wear us out, that is life-giving, prosperous, good. We get to rule with him as kings and priests underneath him. But life has meaning for all eternity with him. And the coolest thing for me is, is that you're going to get to see God face to face. You'll get to ask all the questions you never got to ask. You'll get to wrap your arms around Christ. You will see the things you have hoped and prayed for your whole life. You will not only get the things you've hoped and prayed for all your life, you'll get the things your heart didn't even know how to ask for. Because God is just. He is good. Realize that evil exists tonight, but that God has a plan. Let me pray for you. Father, Lord, we know in this world we'll have trouble, but we know that you will overcome it. Lord, I pray tonight for those of us whose lives are so good, help us to get involved with those whose lives are falling down around them. Help us not to just rejoice in our comfort, but to extend that comfort to others. Lord, I ask that if we are going through a hard time, we would draw closer to you, that we would see the suffering and the pain for all it is, but then take it, grab it up, and hand it to you, Lord. Would you help us? Would you remind us of our chosenness in you? And that that chosenness is not only something for me, but for the world. And that as the people of God, we are to do the things of God. (coughs) And Lord, tonight, would you powerfully remind us of the hope that we have in you. As we read Revelation, Lord, there are some parts that should scare us. There are some parts that should confuse us. But most of all, Lord, would you help us to move forward on Monday with the hope that we have in you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you. You're dismissed.